Heavenly Father, you have given us another beautiful day in your mercy, another day before that day when you will come. And so we pray now that you would sustain my voice, not for my sake, but for your glory, that you might speak now to us through this word which you gave to Zephaniah so long ago, and that we might hear of what you will do and what we can offer. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory among all nations. Amen. So I'm not sure how many of you have lived abroad. Sounds like some of you, uh, fellow five languages, might have lived abroad a little bit. Um, but I feel like I've actually lived in far too many places. So I was born in Ghana. I grew up in Ethiopia. And then I moved from Ethiopia to Australia. From Ethiopia to Aladala. That was a culture shock. Uh, and then I get to reach in Germany, and then left on mission with my family in East Asia. That's five continents, a couple more to go. Now you might think that would leave me with more than just a weird accent, some crazy stories. You might think that would leave me with an international perspective that cares deeply for the nation. But if I'm really honest, most of the time, I struggle to care for the neighbors on my streets, let alone for the whole world, even though it's kind of my job as well. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong, I love international food and tourist attractions and serendipitous conversations with strangers, and I have felt compassion. Imagine you have too, even anger, as we've heard the horrible news from Ukraine and Myanmar and Ethiopia. But really caring about the problems of other nations, you know, caring with my money, and my time, and my energy. If I'm honest, I find that really hard. Most of the time, I don't even know what I have What about you? I mean, I imagine in a room this big of students from our nation's capital, surely some of you came to uni praying to change the world, to make a difference, to influence international affairs. You chose your degree with a global perspective. You study with purpose, and you aim to offer something. And if that's you, how do your plans fit with God's plan? Do you know what God's plans for the nations are? And what if your plans of what you hope to offer are actually at cross-purposes with what God will do? What if the most significant difference that you could make is different to what you expect? Others of us, let's be honest, we don't plan to change the world. The kid is working. Oh, oh no, I had a picture of young Seth drifting into university. You have to imagine a Hyundai accent, 2006 model gold, and young Seth. Basically, it's Jim Carrey with a Russell Bieber haircut. Um, young Seth drifting into university, and you may be like me, you're not thinking much of other nations, let alone our nation. You're here to have a good time. Drink coffee, get qualified, and secure however large a slice you can in the Australian pursuit of pleasure. And if that's you, and it certainly was me, it could be that we're not planning to offer anything because we're selfish. Honestly, we're short-sighted. And we need to be challenged not to bury our treasure in the sand, not to rob God of his glory with too small a vision. The raw body of glory of offerings that are too small or non existent. But for most of us, it could be that we're not planning to offer anything because we don't feel like we have anything to offer. 
right? We look at ourselves and we see small, insignificant, inadequate. You know, we struggle to clean up our own room, let alone the chaos of the world. What could I have to offer a world with Ukraine and Taiwan and Syria and Somalia and Myanmar and Afghanistan and plenty of problems without borders? There's racism and sexism and sickness and injustice and natural inequality that COVID has only heightened. It's overwhelming. And it's been overwhelming for a long time. I enjoy listening to this podcast called Hardcore History. And it is exactly what it sounds like. From Xerxes to Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar to Genghis Khan, ravaging the world with violence. I was listening to the most recent episodes about World War II, and at the end of the war, after those two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, the Tokyo war trials turned out to be a massive miscarriage of justice. The emperor was absolved of any responsibility for the war, and a powerful general called Kojo, he bore the responsibility. And before he was executed, this is what General Kojo said. There is no such thing as justice in international relations in this What can I offer an overwhelming and unjust world? More importantly, what are God's plans for the nations? Will God ever do anything about all this mess? About all this international injustice? Is there any such thing as justice in international relations in this universe? God said that one day there will be. Turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 2. Look there in your handout if it would be helpful. We're at point one. God will humble all proud nations and end evil. We start in the West in Zephaniah 2, verse 4. Oh, that's very small. I want to see if I got large. Uh, uh, you have to go. Uh, <laughs> oh. Wait a minute. We'll see. Zephaniah 2, verse 4. Keep it open in your Bibles. For Gaza shall be deserted. And Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. In verses 4 to 7, the judgment of God falls on the land west of Judah and Jerusalem. The cities of the Philistines are destroyed from south to north. And just as the wicked inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah were dealt with, so God promises in verse 5. Uh, will now. No, maybe it won't now. Hey, thank you so much. <laughs> Man, all this tech guy stuff, I'm really grateful. Alright, I will destroy you until no inhabitant of left, God said to the inhabitants of the Philistine. God didn't privilege his own special people. No special treatment, no partiality, so no nation will escape the destruction that is to come. And what will be accomplished by all of this destruction? Justice. Because the lowly will be lifted up. In verse 6, this day, which will sweep away all wicked creatures, will produce, you see it there? A place for animals, pastures, and meadows. Then in verse 7, the humble remnant of the house of Judah, who would only perhaps be saved, a few verses before, will hear, that possibility becomes a promise. They shall lie down 
And this great reversal, this lifting of the lowly, is because God will restore their fortune. Now, this note of hope is going to grow louder in today's section and then drown out everything tomorrow. But while reversal of fortunes is hopeful for the humble, it's horrible for the proud. Because if the lowly are to be lifted up, the proud must be put down. And so we turn to the east, verse 8. I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. God, who is mindful of his humble, humiliated people, God hears the proud taunts of their enemies, and he ends them forever. In the West, Zephaniah emphasized the lifting of the lowly, the restoration of the remnant. But here in the East, Zephaniah emphasizes the humbling of the proud. The proud will be plundered. In verse 8, they boasted they would take the territory of others, boasted that they would take the land of God's special people. So the irony comes in verse 9. God will take their land from them and give it to his special people. The punishment fits the crime in reversal, which is painful for the proud, but hopeful for the humble. Hopeful for Zephaniah's first listeners, surrounded by enemies boasting against their territory. Hopeful for Christians fleeing Ukraine and the pride of Putin. Hopeful for the persecuted in North Korea and Somalia, where Christians face death or faith in Jesus. Hopeful for those in China or Muslim nations where Christians can be marginalized or ashamed. Or even here in the secular West, in Australia, where sometimes it feels like it's getting harder to be a Christian. With the UN Human Rights Committee expressing concern at the lack of legal protection for religious freedom in Australia. This passage reminds us that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to take matters into our angry hands. Because God has a plan. An international plan to end evil. One day God himself will turn the tables. And God's plan comes to a crescendo there in verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nation. Yesterday in Zephaniah chapter 1, we saw God focus first on false worshippers. We learn why false worship is even worse than social injustice. So here, at the end of the West and the East, God focuses first again on international false worship. On that day, he will end the false religion that deceives and confuses. The false gods will be famished, starved of worshippers, because the one true living God, the Lord, will be awesome. And all the lands of the nations, every knee shall bow to him. All the lands? Yes. So now we turn to the south and to the north. Verse 12. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. One slash of God's sword, and the farthest of all of the nations mentioned, the Cushites, or the Ethiopians, as you can also translate this word, they are slain without any explanation. This feels to me like one of the most darkest verses. It seems like it's the end of the Cushite story. But wait, in a moment, we'll see that the Cushites have the brightest. But first we must move north 
to the destruction of the greatest of all Israelite enemies so far. The worst of all the unjust nations so far is Assyria and its capital, Nineveh. Verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herbs shall lie down in the midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owls and the hedgehog shall lodge in the cabin. Just as chapter 1 told us that God would stretch out his hand against Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, so verse 13 tells us that God will stretch out his hand against Assyria and its capital, Nineveh. Yesterday, we listened to the inhabitants of Jerusalem say to their heart, the Lord won't be good, nor will he do evil. And now we hear this exalted city that lives securely say to her heart something that only God has the right I am, and there is no one else. But that boast won't last long. The first image there of Nineveh's destruction at the end of verse 13, desolation and a dry waste like the desert. That literally came true. 200 years after Zephaniah promised, the Greek general Xenophon records in his annals, passing the site where Nineveh once was. And finding only shifting deserts, not a trace of sleep. But that second series of images is a little unusual, isn't it? Like desolation is terrifying, but hedgehogs from hell? Like that's a little weird. In fact, look at it. We're told twice, verse 14 and 15, that Nineveh will be filled with all kinds of beasts. The irony is that this city, which claimed to be more than human, that claimed to be God, become less than, even ruled by, the wild animal. This is God's impartial, horribly poetic justice. How the mighty fall, how the proud are humiliated. This is what it looks like when international evil comes to an end. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his head. This will be the fate of every exalted city, of all the proud peoples who forget God and in their arrogance lift themselves up, pushing others down, as if to pull God off from his throne, as if to assert their dominance. Nineveh, Babylon, Rome, Moscow, Beijing, Washington, Canberra, one day, whether within history or at the end of history, on that final day, God's impartial international judgment will erupt across the earth. This is God's first plan for the nations. One day, God will tumble all proud nations and end evil forever. The first before we come to the next part of God's plan, there's a surprise, there's a sad surprise at the very center of the prophet. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who's rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she does not trust in the Lord, she does not draw near to her God. Only very slowly do you realize 
In verse 2, Zephaniah speaks of the city as having a special relationship with her God. In verse 5, we see that the Lord is within her. But the city has never introduced that. It's never given the name Jerusalem. It's almost as if that name is no longer fitting for her. She's lost that identity. That city, which is like set apart from the nation, spoken to by God, has stopped up her ears and turned the other way and become just like the other nations. It has become, Jerusalem has become Judah. It's become exalted. Only worse. Worse because whereas the future of Nineveh has been destroyed by the beasts of chaos, this beast is already full of them. Verse 3. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that mean nothing to the Lord. The people of political and religious power in the city who should have used their lofty positions to serve the lowly, they are corrupt and beastly. Unjust judges, treacherous prophets, profaning priests. Nothing is as it should be in this city. So why is it still here? Because there is one thing that should be as it is in the city. Verse 5 tells us, The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice, and each dawn he does not fail. God is still within this city, and he hasn't changed. He does justice day by day. And in his justice, he has destroyed other wicked nations, but this city has failed to learn its lesson. Look at verse 6. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I said, surely you will do it. You will accept my correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the wars and wickedness to make all their deeds. Can you hear the anguish in God's voice here? God is slow to anger and prefers mercy. He longed for his wicked people to accept correction, to hear his call and humble themselves, to see his justice poured out on other nations and heed the warning. But instead of stopping, instead of humbling themselves, they were all the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Their privilege became the occasion for greater sin. This reminds me of Jesus crying out only days before his death, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you, you are not there. May this never, brothers and sisters, may this never be you and me hearing God's word, but ignoring it unwilling to obey, presuming on the riches of God's grace, enjoying all the benefits of being a Christian, and then going out to live just like everybody else, but worse. If this is you, hear this warning, you are storing up anger for yourself, because God will not wait forever. Verse 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision, 
is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the God has decided what to do about the nations. God himself will rise as a hunter and seize the prey of wild beasts. Whether Assyria or Jerusalem, Hitler's Germany or Putin's Russia, the junta in Myanmar or British colonizers, he will humble all proud nations and he will end evil forever. And his special people, who have become worse than Nineveh, so-called Israelites and so-called Christians who live just like everybody else, proud and selfish, they will be consumed alongside all the others as the impartial justice of God overtakes and consumes all the four corners of the earth. And finally, on that day, there will be international justice. God's decision here is hopeful for the humble, horrible to the body. And it makes very clear what our response ought to be, what we can offer. Nothing. Nothing but humble waiting. In verse 8, God says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up. Now Zephaniah really isn't a book about what we have to offer, is it? It's a book about what God will do. Our world prizes people like Alexander Hamilton, who is not going to waste his shot. And it mocks those like Aaron Burr, who always wait for it. But as Christians, we do wait for God. We don't lose hope when we get humiliated. We don't angrily take matters into our own hands. We wait for the God who will bring international justice and end evil on his day. So are you waiting for the day, for his day when Jesus will return? Whenever you watch news from Ukraine and Taiwan and Myanmar and Ethiopia and feel overwhelmed all the pride and injustice of Australia, are you waiting for God and for his day when he will end Earlier this week, the Ukrainian President Zelensky listed all the atrocities of civilian slaughter and cityscapes demolished, and he said, God's not forgiven. Not today, not tomorrow, never. Instead of forgiveness, there will be a day of judgment. And he's right. There will be a day of judgment. But he is wrong. There still remain the possibility. Because if we stopped in verse 8, we think that was the end of the nations and that we had nothing to offer at all. But in verse 9, which has to be one of the biggest gear changes in the Bible, verse 9 shows us another ending. Humbling all proud nations and ending evil is only one way this story ends because God will also lift all lowly nations and turn evil to. Point two, verse nine. At that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. That might not seem like it, but there is a lot going on in this verse. 
In fact, it's a remix, a reversal of an ancient account of the very beginning of the Bible called the Tower of Babel. And to explain this remix a little and show you that God has always planned not just to end evil, but to bless all nations, we need to turn back to the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, God's plan for all the peoples of the earth and all nations, I think it's hinted that in the first two chapters of the Bible. Way back in Genesis 1, where God creates one humanity in his image, male and female, he blesses them with a command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. All humans are made equal in God's image. All nations. So Christians can never be racist. God has blessed all people with a command to flourish and fill the earth which is an earth filled with treasure. Because in Genesis 2, that first man and woman walked through the Garden of Eden to the banks of a river. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And these four rivers flow out to the four corners of the earth. And you learn the world God gave in each of those corners is a world full of treasure. Gold, good gold, bdellium, onyx stone. I don't know what bdellium is, but anyways, the nations that fill the earth were intended by God for blessing. They were made good and given plenty to you. But in the very next chapter, humans reject God. Even if you haven't heard the story, you've all seen the apple logo, the bite of what was forbidden. God gave abundance. <laughs> Abundance. But humanity rose up and they took what was not theirs to take. So God gave them over to their proud taking, which overtook the world. And climaxed in the building of a great tower, the Tower of Babel, when all the peoples of the earth rejected God's blessed command to fill the earth and subdue it. Instead, they said, Come. Let us build ourselves a city, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In their pride, this city, just like Nineveh, just like Jerusalem, sought to rise up and make a name for themselves. But God came down to disperse them, confuse their languages, doomed each nation to the international chaos that has marked our world ever since. Since this day, each sin-infected nation has pushed others down, raising itself up, seeking its own name and its own glory, filling the earth with injustice. But God has not given up on this humanity bond. They may have taken and taken and taken and keep on taking, but God wanted to give again. So God chose the most unlikely dude possible, Abraham, an old man with a wife who couldn't have babies, still living at home with his dad. God told Abraham to move out, and he promised him incredible blessings, which culminated in blessings for all nations. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth to be blessed. God made promises to Abraham to bless all nations, even the proud nations that built Babel. And the future is as bright as the promises of God. So even Babel 
and be unjust. So in Zephaniah 3, verse 9, these people whose speech was so boastful and proud, I am, there's no other, God will change their speech to a pure speech. Not that everyone will speak the same language and be uniform, but that in every language, every tongue, they will confess, they will all of them call upon the name of the Lord. These proud builders of Babel, they wanted to make their own name great, but here they humbly call on the name of God, and they serve Him with one accord, literally in Hebrew, one shoulder. So the nations are included as God's special people, as evil is changed, as evil is turned to good. How is this possible? It's the same question we had yesterday. How can it be that all nations are lifted when they just deserve to be lower? And the wonderful answer is that God shows no partiality, neither in his anger nor in his mercy. The humble of all nations may be hidden because God has kept his promises to Abraham in Abraham's greatest sight. Jesus the Jew was handed over to the nations to face God's anger for all nations. Just as Moab and Ammon mocked Judah and Jerusalem, so the Romans mocked Jesus. They dressed him up in a purple robe and spat in his face. Just as Moab and Ammon will be plundered, so Jesus had his clothes diced away as he cried, Father, forgive them. Just as those who passed Nineveh hissed and shook their fists at the desolation, so those who passed by the cross of the King of Glory, they derided him, wagging their heads. He died on a cross of wood, though he made the hill on which it stood. Jesus, the humble Jew, was humiliated, lowered to the depths of the grave, so that we, proud peoples from all nations, could be forgiven and hidden and lifted up to take part in this great reversal. So that on that day there will be international justice. Either international evil will end in God's anger, or it will return to eternal blessing. Because Jesus the Jew faced the anger of God for all, either Jews or believers in any nation, from all nations, even Cush. Verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my In the Bible, good things often come in threes, and Cush is actually mentioned three times in this book. The first time is in chapter 1, verse 1. For Zephaniah is the son of Cushi, which could actually be translated the son of a Cushite. It's not certain, but it's quite probable that Zephaniah was half Jew, half Cushite, which probably explains why he includes Cush rather than Egypt as the representative nation of the south which we saw was slain by God's sword. But here in chapter 3, we find that beyond the rivers of Cush, those rivers that we saw in Genesis 2, beyond those rivers, God's worshippers shall bring an offering. These people who were the farthest off and not God's special people, who deserve to be dispensed with only one slash of God's sword, they are now welcomed as worshippers who have an offering to give. I don't know if you've ever noticed that parents give their kids gifts. 
to give that to them. Have you seen that? It's kind of weird, right? At Christmas, um, my wife gave my daughter Josie a present to give back to me. Licorice, right? I love licorice. And do you know what was better than giving and eating that licorice? Watching my daughter have the joy of giving that licorice. How good is it to have something to give? Something to give. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And God, He has given treasure to all nations so that all nations can have the joy, so they can be blessed by giving back to Him. In fact, in the Bible's picture of heaven, when the city of God is finally perfect, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory of all But before we arrive at that picture of heaven that will overtake the final section of Zephaniah tomorrow, I want to close by returning to the question we asked at the beginning. What can I offer? We've already spoken about the humble waiting, because Zephaniah really is more about what God will do than what we can offer. But verse 10 has told us that even the farthest nations, even Cush, is given something to give back, is offered something to offer. And as Christians, we don't wait passively. No, we know that in these last days, before that day of the Lord, God has actually included us in his plans to bless all nations. He's given us our lives and all of our gifts to offer back to him for his mission to bless all nations. After Jesus rose from the dead, he gave that great commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And friends, this is more than a command. It's an invitation to join God in his family business of bringing blessing to all nations. It's God giving us something to give, offering us the opportunity to offer life to nations. This is the reason that God is waiting. The reason why Zephaniah's prophecies have not yet been fully fulfilled. Because God himself is waiting and working a mission of salvation through us. And let's be clear, I wouldn't choose us. Would you choose us? Would you choose me? Maybe Ned. Maybe that guy can speak five languages. But like me? Us? But God has chosen us. But this monumental mission now, as perhaps the widest Kushite you will ever meet, I want to finish by sharing a snippet of what God has done beyond the rivers in southern Ethiopia. Over the last 100 years, millions of people have become Christians in southern Ethiopia, and it's an incredible story, which the foreword to my grandfather's book, shameless plug, at the back there, yep, um, my grandfather's book describes it this way. It's a story of men and women who left their fields, the familiarity of their culture, the security of their families, and who, with a Bible and a water bottle in hand, and confidence in their Savior, took the message of Jesus over the mountain ranges, beyond the rivers, to those who've never heard of him. It's about their conviction that people without Christ are truly and eternally lost. It's about their dedication to the one who said, Go, I'll be with you. And they went. And today, through the sacrifices and sufferings of men and women like these, there are thousands of churches throughout the mountains of southern India. I want to tell you the story of the crippled Fanta, the weak one that God used for a mighty victory. I want to tell you the story of a Monet, 
who died for Jesus as she offered life to others. I want to tell you about Tomole, the gang leader who murdered people. He burnt them alive to extort money. And my grandfather, he shared the message of Jesus with Timoli. He told that murderer that God can turn evil to good. He said, no matter what you've done, no matter how you've sinned, God can forgive you and give you a new heart, a new life. Come to Jesus now. And Timoli heard that simple message that he came, and he offered his life to Jesus. And the very next day, he went to the police, he handed himself in, with rifles, a pistol, and two grenades. <laughs> and this is what he said to the police. Last night I believed in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I'm a new man now. I'm not the old Timothy. I'm a brand new man. And Timothy lived on. And when persecution swept through southern Ethiopia, and missionaries like my grandfather was forced out by the communist government, Timothy offered his life as a leader in the underground church. The taker became a giver, offering himself as a blessing. We began by asking, what can I offer? The missionary martyr, Jim Elliott, who gave his life to bless the awful Indians and died doing it. He once said, they're small <laughs> He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, we can't keep our lives. But if we give them to God, then we will give His life. And there is nothing to do. So, what will you give? You know, some of us have grand plans to change the world, but we need to ask how do our plans fit in with God's plan? Because we have seen what God will do. On that final day, He will humble all proud nations and end evil. But He will also lift up the lowly from all nations who call on the name of Jesus. How do your plans fit with God's plan? Do you share this international perspective? Are you on board with God's mission to disciple the nations and turn evil to good? Now, those of us feel overwhelmed, like we don't have much to offer. But as we wait for the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, we must not do so passively. He's included us in his mission to bless all nations, and he's given us our lives and whatever gifts we do have to offer back to him on his mission to lift up alone from all nations. So have you offered your life and all the gifts that God has given you to the one who wants to include you in his mission to bless to disciple all nations? Will you disciple the nations in Canberra? Will you introduce your classmates to Jesus and disciple your neighbors and share good news with the Aussies and immigrants and international students that travel to our shores? Will you choose one nation, at least one, one missionary to begin praying for, to begin praying today? Maybe Ned, take Ned's car, find out that QR code, then you get internet. Make sure you take a lead. Who will you commit to praying for? Will you use your money? I know you feel like you don't have money, but percentages scale. Begin by giving 3% to God's work amongst the nations. Or will you lay aside your plans here? and go there to where the nations wait. So many people living and dying without even a chance to hear of the one who was humiliated on the cross for them, so that they may be lifted. So many living with half, less than half the resources we have, as you shared with us last night. Will you offer your life in service to his plan? We're about to 
to sing a song now, remembering that this life I live is not my own. For my Redeemer paid the price and took it to be his alone. As we sing this song, make this song your offering of yourself. Maybe you don't know what lies ahead, but he has plenty, and he rights to rule your life. Because the day is coming when God will humble all proud nations and end evil, but also lift up all lowly from all nations as he turns evil to good. And in light of that day, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's stand and pray.